Hey folks, this is Joseph Taylor, and I want to welcome you to the Canopy Church Podcast. We are a brand new church practicing the way of Jesus for the renewal of Chicago, and we're so glad you've joined us today. We have begun the new year by taking a big step into what's next with our official online launch. If you haven't yet joined us for an online service, consider joining us at 10 a.m. or 4 p.m. on Sundays by going to canopychicago.org and clicking Watch Church Online. I hope to see you there. Okay, let's jump in. In 1982, the renowned inventor and visionary R. Buckminster Fuller estimated that up until the year 1900, human knowledge doubled approximately every century. By the end of World War II, he estimated that it was doubling every 25 years. And by 1982, it was doubling every 12 to 13 months. These numbers, while remarkable, seem kind of quaint considering that today, information experts estimate that because of the profound interconnectedness of our knowledge systems and communication, human knowledge is doubling roughly every 12 hours. There's a reason we've had to coin new terms in the English language like infobesity or infoxication and information anxiety. We are constantly inundated with a, a fire hose of opinions, ideas, images, and data from this little portal to infinity in our pockets. So with infinity at our fingertips, how do we wade through all of that information and find what is actually true? Well, buckle up, because we've got a lot of ground to cover today. Now, the ancient Greeks believed there was a single unifying principle that bound all knowledge together into a coherent, knowable reality. Apart from this unifying principle, they believed knowledge and reality itself would break down into chaos. This single unifying principle was the basis for their pursuit of truth in philosophy, science, mathematics, and, and beyond. They called this unifying principle the logos. In Greek thought, the logos provided a, a kind of coherence to reality and thus a unity or an integrity to the pursuit and discovery of truth. The logos meant that the truth of the philosopher must coincide with the truth of the ethicist and the astronomer because there was one singular principle that unified them all. Logos translates for us most directly into English as word, but it was much richer in meaning than just word, as in a grouping of letters into a, you know, a distinct linguistic unit. It meant knowledge, knowability, language, and unity. The Stoics, whom the Apostle Paul reasoned with in Acts 17, believed that the key to achieving freedom, happiness, and meaning was to attune one's life to the Logos, to bring a coherence and an integrity to life by bringing it into the order revealed by the Word, the Logos. Now, don't worry. Today will not be nearly as heavy on philosophy as it was two weeks ago when we began this five-week series called Elementals. During this series, we are exploring the basic building blocks of faith, and we're working to create a kind of ecosystem of ideas within which we can pursue truth and, and share life together. We began laying a foundation two weeks ago by looking at veritas, Greek for truth. I didn't use this term last week, but we are basically building a new kingdom epistemology, 
We saw, as Augustine of Hippo first declared, that all truth belongs to God, and a wholehearted embrace of the truth should lead us to reject both the dead-end blindness of scientific materialism and the explosive post-truth conspiracies of anti-intellectualism. We are called to love God with all of our minds by embracing and pursuing the truth wherever we may find it, because all truth belongs to God. If you didn't get to listen to that, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to the podcast. Today, we will be building a bridge of sorts from that basic foundation of truth as we look at Logos. We will be considering how we might bring the broad, philosophical embrace of truth a bit closer to home. Because what good is truth if it's just out there? You know, abstract, passive, ineffectual, or or just tied to our smartphones or an internet connection. How do we find truth we can actually do something with? Today, we will attempt to bring that more into focus. To begin, though, we have to acknowledge that we are at a significant disadvantage in the pursuit of truth relative to most previous generations. Although the conventional wisdom may suggest that because human knowledge is doubling every 12 hours or whatever, we must be constantly being enriched by this wealth of knowledge, and we must be better off at navigating life and reality than any people who have ever lived on planet Earth before. Because we stand on the top of this mountain of knowledge, we must at least be the smartest and most enlightened people, right? Well, this is what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. The sense that our thinking and our art and our science are inherently superior to that of previous eras, simply because we've come latest. But I think a simple observation of the state of our world might suggest otherwise. All that information is not, in fact, ushering us into utopia. In short, we have a problem with truth. And why is that? Well, I can think of at least three key kind of interconnected reasons why the advancement of information has not led to a constant uniform upward trajectory of happiness and fulfillment and just a sense of a life well lived. First, it's certainly due in part to the tribal epistemologies that we discussed two weeks ago, which have, they just proliferated in this world that we live in. When we are operating within these tribal epistemologies, we train ourselves to equate true with good for our side. We operate with a a profound distrust of the other side, whoever we imagine them to be. And we grow in distrust of their version of truth, and we get locked in an almost constant struggle for power. This distrust and these struggles for power, they create a a near-constant cycle of existential crises and low-grade fear, leading to a quality of life similar to what previous generations only experienced in times of war. We are literally in the middle of a war of ideas. I think that may be why last Wednesday was such a joyous day for so many, because at the very least, we now seem to have national leaders who intend to bring an armistice to some of those wars of ideas. Second, I think we have a problem with truth because, as Neil Postman argues in his seminal work, Amusing Ourselves to Death, we have so thoroughly immersed ourselves in an entertainment paradigm 
that we have, we've literally rewired our brains. Postman argues that compared to the vocabulary, attention span, and just the basic desire for understanding of previous generations, we fall pretty far short. As an example, he cites the famous debate between Abraham Lincoln and his Senate uh, candidate challenger, Stephen Douglas. Postman writes, the first of seven famous debates between Abraham Lincoln and Stephen A. Douglas took place on August 21st, 1858 in Ottawa, Illinois. Their arrangement provided that Douglas would speak first for one hour. Lincoln would take an hour and a half to reply. Douglas, a half hour to rebut Lincoln's reply. And this debate was considerably shorter than those to which the two men were accustomed. In fact, they had tangled several times before and all of their encounters had been much lengthier and more exhausting. For example, on October 16, 1854, in Peoria, Illinois, Douglas delivered a three-hour address to which Lincoln, uh, Lincoln rather, by agreement, was to respond. When Lincoln's turn came, he reminded the audience that it was already 5 p.m., that he would probably require as much time as Douglas, and that Douglas was still scheduled for a rebuttal. He proposed, therefore, that the audience go home, have dinner, and return refreshed for four more hours of talk. The audience amiably agreed, and matters proceeded as Lincoln had outlined. What kind of audience was this, Postman writes? Who were these people who could so cheerfully accommodate themselves to seven hours of oratory? Well, as it turns out, they were just normal Midwestern folks, operating within a far more literate and literary world than ours. Unfortunately for us, just like the alcoholic pickles their liver through continued oversaturation, so we have pickled our minds through an oversaturation of entertainment and visual stimulation and social media-induced dopamine hits. And it has significantly hampered our attention spans, our memories, and our overall intellectual capacities. Finally, and probably most significantly, we have a significant disadvantage when it comes to the discovery of truth because we in the West live in what is called the postmodern world. The world of ideas largely created by 19th century European philosophers like Hume, Nietzsche, Kant, and Descartes. Why is this a problem for discerning truth? Because the postmodern world these thinkers helped create is one where everything is suspect, everything is up for scrutiny, and where we essentially get to create meaning and purpose for ourselves. I think you'd probably agree with me that it's not at all uncommon to hear terms like his truth, your truth, or my truth. Here's how self-help writer Tony Fockery puts it. Living your truth must come to represent that which is true for you alone and unhindered by outside influences. Unhindered by outside influences. Find the truth within yourself, the self-help guru says. Or consider this from the famous Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung. Quote, Your vision will become clear only when you can look into your own heart. Who looks outside dreams. Who looks inside awakes. These ideas would have been unthinkable in previous eras. Truth was not previously seen as something to wield or possess or determine solely for yourself. 
Truth was seen to be bigger and, and broader than and mostly indifferent to the individual. Now, we need some nuance here because there's a tiny nugget of validity in these ideas that each individual has a unique set of experiences and gifts that gives them a, a unique vantage point, a unique perspective on life. And there's tons to learn by turning our gaze to our own inner worlds, whether through therapy or the Enneagram or whatever else. But there is a vast difference between a personal perspective and a personal truth. We, we cheapen the word to use it that way. I have to agree with psychologist Martin Seligman, who wrote that, quote, the self is a very poor site for finding meaning. And unfortunately, this individualized, kind of relativized postmodern world, it's increasingly incoherent and nonsensical. A common statement in our cultural moment is something like, there's no such thing as absolute truth. Yet, that statement is itself an absolute, and thus it's self-contradictory, it's nonsense. If there's no such thing as absolute truth, then there's no such thing as the idea that, quote, there's no such thing as absolute truth. We also often hear something like, it's all, it's all right to believe what you want, just don't impose it on me. Well, that statement implies it is wrong for you to impose your beliefs on me, which is itself a belief, one which is imposed on the hearer. It's self-contradictory, it's, it's irrational, and it's nonsense. And these kinds of nonsensical axioms of the postmodern world they make life and reality increasingly absurd and fragmented and chaotic. Like we're all operating in our own little bubbles of meaning and truth and we're made to fear accidentally popping anyone else's bubble even though they're constantly bumping into each other. What's even more bizarre is that other domains of knowledge like science and mathematics, they hum along in some ways almost impervious to this postmodern thinking. In math, 2 plus 2 equals 4, regardless of your personal feelings about it. It is a concrete, undeniable reality. Science operates largely on the same premise, that there is such a thing as objective reality, and it doesn't matter much whether you want it imposed on you or not. Two hydrogen and one oxygen makes water. Every action has an equal and opposite reaction. Science assumes a, a coherence to the universe, and it discovers and creates many good and wonderful things because of that assumed coherence. The development of a vaccine, for instance, only happens in an ecosystem that assumes coherence and unity, and that the truth, like the truth that sickness is caused by viruses, which can be dealt with through medical means, these, these truths supersede the individual, and they bind individuals together into a co cohesive and larger whole. So our third and final problem with truth is that as we wade through the deluge of information, in order to try at least to discover what is true, we have to work all of this out in this world where we are constantly hampered by the nonsense and the incoherence of postmodernism. Now just as a quick aside, I don't think postmodernism is completely useless. It has helped kind of temper the idolatry of the human mind that was so prevalent during the Enlightenment. And it has reintroduced a sense of mystery and wonder that the modernists pretty arrogantly believed that they had dispelled once and for all. 
And postmodernity has helped us better understand the function of power in culture and thus to better understand the plight of the oppressed. Nonetheless, postmodernism as an overarching worldview, it makes no sense and it leaves us seriously hindered in our quest for truth and for meaning. Postmodernism was simply a reaction against modernism. Postmodernism is basically the angsty, irrational, pimple-faced teenager of worldviews. And if we need evidence that this postmodern ecosystem of ideas isn't working, we don't really have to look any further than the post-truthers who have come just kind of out of the woodwork in the last few years. Folks who think that just because they believe something, that makes it true. Unfortunately for them, this is not the case. Belief will not create fact. Truth is independent of belief. No matter how hard I may try, believing something will not make it true. This is because belief is only as good as the object in which we put our trust. Here's what I mean. A friend might come to me and say, hey, let's go for a ride on my new plane. But if I found, find out that their plane hardly runs at all and that my friend doesn't even have a pilot's license, then my faith, no matter how much of it I, I may have, it is not well-founded. And yet this is how so much of our world operates, as if belief substitutes for truth, as if preference substitutes for knowledge. Writer Walker Perry summed all of this up quite well when he wrote, quote, you live in a deranged age, more deranged than usual, because despite great scientific and technological advances, Man has not the faintest idea of who he is or what he is doing. Okay, so we have a problem with truth. We're at a, a serious disadvantage in discovering meaning. How then do we find truth that we can trust? Truth that we can, that we can do something with? Truth that might lead us to a life well lived? Well, we need guidance. Not from within, but primarily from without. In short, we need revelation. We need to find evidence from outside of ourselves that reveals the contours and the textures of reality. Reality as it actually is, not reality as we would like or choose for it to be. We need revelation to uncover what unity and cohesion there is to reality. Traditionally, this revelation was understood to belong to two categories. First, there is general or natural revelation. This is the truth we can discover in nature. Now, when I say nature, don't think forests and mountains and your Patagonia gear. Think physical reality, matter, atoms, the human body, all the things that we can learn through observation and study and experimentation with the physical world. In theological terms, this is what could be called creation. This is what the Apostle Paul was referring to when he wrote in his brilliant theological treatise called Romans, what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. So through natural revelation, we can come to discover truth, reality, and God himself. But the second category of revelation by which we come to discover and understand truth and reality 
is one that science or the scientific materialism uh, that we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, it's one that it isn't able to account for because it goes beyond what we can see or measure. This is because, as the book of Ecclesiastes says, God has planted eternity in the human heart. Our relentless search for purpose and meaning, it goes far beyond what science or mathematics can reveal. And this eternity makes us dependent on the truth of the artist, the truth of the poet, the truth of the moral philosopher, and the truth of the theologian. And to discover truth in these invisible spheres, invisible yet no less real, we need divine revelation. If we think of reality as being like a story, divine revelation is the mind of the author himself written onto the pages of the story. And divine revelation is what the Greeks were on about with their concept of the logos, a single unifying principle that makes all reality coherent and integrous, and at least to an extent, knowable. And this brings us to the focal point for today's teaching. We agree with the Greeks that there is a single unifying principle to reality. There is a logos. And we agree with the Apostle John who grabbed hold of that Greek philosophical idea and developed it further to say that the logos is not just a principle. It's not just an idea. Here's how John put it. In the beginning was the logos. And the logos was with God. And the logos was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. The Logos gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. No, the Logos is not just an idea. The Logos is a person. He is the author of this epic story we all find ourselves in. And for the last 3,000 years or so, countless millions, maybe billions of people from nearly every language and culture and worldview have come to discover that the Logos, the Word, is knowable because He has spoken to us. Yes, He's revealed much of who He is through natural revelation. But most importantly, he has disclosed his character and his plans and his reality through divine revelation. Roughly 3,000 years ago, this author began speaking by way of prophets from this fledgling little ancient people group known as the Hebrews. Although by almost any measure they were an unremarkable people, yet by the spoken and written words of these prophets, who, by the way, were literary geniuses, Divine revelation began to illuminate reality, revealing lines and shapes and color and texture that had never been seen before. This diverse group of prophets, men, women, slaves, kings, poets, and historians, they began revealing things that had remained pure mysteries to previous generations. And these revelations weren't just for this little fledgling people group. They were for all people. There was a benevolence and a, and a generosity to the revelations from the outset. And as word of these revelations began spreading and being studied and understood, 
a great and growing number of people came to understand that these weren't just the works of human hands or the product of brilliant human minds. These were works that were inspired and illuminated by the author himself. These works were not just literature. They were scripture. They were holy. And over the course of about a thousand years, these 66 texts were compiled into what we now know as the Bible. The Logos, the Word, is a person. And through this library of texts, he has made himself known. And as we come to know him and the truth that is rooted in him, we come to understand more about all of reality. Knowledge of him becomes the key to knowledge in every other domain. Now, this isn't to say that facts and knowledge can't be discovered by those who don't see his presence and character, but it is to say that without knowledge of his presence and character, over time, knowledge found elsewhere will be misapplied and it will skew and warp and twist human life in the process. This is what the great wisdom teacher meant when he wrote that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Knowledge of the author is key to understanding the whole story. And because of that, we must assert that these divinely inspired texts are authoritative. They hold a weight and an importance and they must be given a priority in our kingdom epistemology, as I'm calling it. One that, that goes beyond any other sources of authority or any other arbiters of truth. Because God's divine revelation illuminates truth in a, in a deeper and a broader and more fundamental way than the best of human intellect and understanding elsewhere. Let me put it this way. When the batteries and the power sources of our lesser lights of philosophy and science go out, the Bible is the steady burning of the sun. The great poet Lord Tennyson spoke to this reality when he wrote, Our little systems have their day. They have their day and cease to be. They are but broken lights of thee, and thou, O Lord, art more than they. But is the Bible really a reliable, let alone authoritative arbiter of truth? Isn't it full of holes and contradictions? Hasn't it been discredited? Haven't the words been edited and changed over time? Why would we take it to be reliable about anything, let alone about matters of ultimate importance? Well, as we consider those kinds of questions, which I imagine pretty much all of us ask at one time or another, I would first of all like to make a brief case for why, yes, the Bible is reliable. And second, I would like for us to consider, once again, the cultural context out of which those questions even emerge. So first, let's consider the evidence for the Bible's reliability as a reliable testimony of the truth. And it's right that we should consider this in the same way that you shouldn't just receive the testimony in court of someone who's been shown to be unreliable or dishonest. In the same way, we shouldn't just accept the testimony of the Bible as authoritative unless it has shown itself to be reliable. And it absolutely has. First, there is the archaeological evidence. Thousands of archaeological finds in the last century have corroborated the accounts of people, places, and historical events found in the Bible. Coins have been found with the names of ancient kings 
that were previously found nowhere else but in the Bible. In 1993, a piece of pottery that reliably dates to the 8th or 9th century BC was found with the inscription, House of David, on it. Other similar inscriptions from the same period have been found elsewhere. There was a time where skeptics doubted that the ancient town of Nazareth, the hometown of Jesus, even existed. But in 2006, a house, a tomb, and a cistern were unearthed, precisely where Nazareth was supposed to have been. No archaeological finds have ever disproved a single biblical event or civilization or individual. But on the contrary, there are numerous incidents where archaeology has disproved skeptics and where it has upheld the facts that were written about and asserted long ago in the Bible. Second, there is the manuscript evidence, which is the focus of an entire area of scientific study known as textual criticism. Textual criticism evaluates ancient texts and it considers whether the forms that we have those texts in today are reliable and accurate. It does this primarily by examining the number of copies of early texts that we have and the time gap that exists between the original document and our earliest copies. So the more manuscripts that we have and the earlier they are, the more reliably we know what the original text contained. In order to see how the New Testament stacks up against other ancient texts, let's look at this infographic based on textual criticism data. On the right, we've got other ancient texts, most or all of which are widely relied upon in schools and universities. Just to highlight a few, let's look at Herodotus and Thucydides, Greek historians who both wrote in the 5th century BC. The earliest copies we have of their work dates to 900 AD, a time gap of 1,300 years, and we only have eight copies. Or look just below them at the historian Tacitus, who's considered to be one of the greatest Roman historians and who, as a matter of fact, wrote about the rabbi Jesus of Nazareth. There is a 1,000-year time gap between his work and our earliest manuscripts, and we only have 20 copies. And the strongest case we can make for the reliability of an ancient text, second only to the Bible, is Homer's Iliad, where we learn about the Trojan War, which was kind of the defining conflict of ancient Greece. We have 643 early manuscript copies of the Iliad, with about a 500-year time gap between Homer writing the Iliad in 762 BC and our earliest manuscripts. By comparison, when it comes to the New Testament, well, really, there is no comparison. The books and letters of the New Testament were written between about 40 and 100 AD. And we have manuscript evidence going as far back as 130 AD. And then we have an astounding 24,000 manuscript copies between ancient Greek manuscripts and then translations from the Greek into Latin and other languages. So not only do we have an overwhelming number of manuscripts, but we have a 30-year time gap, at most, between our earliest manuscripts and their original writing. F.J.A. Hort, who's one of the most widely respected scholars in the area of textual criticism, he sums up all this data like this. In the variety and fullness of evidence on which it rests, 
The text of the New Testament stands absolutely and unapproachably alone amongst ancient prose writings. And as for the rest of our Bible, what we often call the Old Testament, in 1946, a roving group of teenage shepherds stumbled upon a cave on the northwest shore of the Dead Sea. And they discovered a collection of sealed clay pots containing a bunch of leather and papyrus scrolls. They sold what they found to an antiques dealer, and within just a few years, it was discovered that what they had found and sold was a literal treasure trove of the most ancient and numerous manuscripts of the Old Testament that had ever been found. All told, their discovery, which is now known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, made up between 800 and 900 ancient manuscripts of the Hebrew prophetic texts, dating back 2,000 years. The scrolls contain fragments of every single Old Testament book, except for the book of Esther. And when we compare the texts of those ancient scrolls to the texts of the scriptures as we have them today, they are incredibly consistent. There's a few spelling differences. There's a difference about exactly how tall Goliath was. And there's a few other small variations. But other than that, the Dead Sea Scrolls demonstrate overwhelmingly that the manuscripts that our modern translations are based on are reliable, accurate, and trustworthy. Why does all this historical data matter? Well, because for one, it demonstrates beyond any reasonable doubt that the Bible, as we have it today, provides credible, reliable historical testimony. But it also matters because it reveals the incredible diligence, reverence, and care of the long-running and diverse community of biblical scribes who painstakingly copied and preserved these texts for future generations. They held these texts to be divinely inspired. They held them to be scripture. And as the inheritors of this incredible wealth of care and labor and divine revelation, we can, and I would say we must, prize and highly value our inheritance. This book. Now, let's consider our critical and critiquing questions addressed to the Bible from a different angle. Yes, the Bible can hold itself up to our probing questions. But do we have the self-awareness and the courage to consider why we even feel the need to ask these questions in the first place? I would gently call our attention back to this world of ideas out of which these questions have emerged, this postmodern world. A world where we have been led to believe that everything is supposedly up for scrutiny and critique and critical evaluation. We don't really feel the need to question whether 2 plus 2 does in fact equal 4, but because we know that it does, we can build on that and move on to far more advanced mathematics. I don't have to question whether the floor I'm standing on will support my weight, but because I know that it can, I can move across it and I can build on top of it. Because of this, I would like to suggest that we make it a regular practice to doubt our doubts. Question our questions. Turn our skeptical eye on our own minds, our own thoughts, to consider how our pre-existing assumptions and plausibility structures may be hampering our view. Am I really in a position to play judge and jury 
against an authoritative text? Or, far be it, against God himself? There is nothing, hear me, there is nothing inherently wrong with the questions. And the Bible and God himself can certainly handle our questions. But we have to face the reality that the more we entertain doubt, the more we allow skepticism and critique to drive the ship, the more we will be missing opportunities to build a life on the truth. Reading the Bible is not easy. But could we really respect it and rely on it if it read like young adult fiction? The Bible is a, it's a meditative text. It, like God himself, only gives up its secrets over time and then only to those who really hunger and thirst for what it contains. If the Bible is true, and if it does truly show us the author of the human story, in other words, if the Bible is the word of God, then we got a lot of work to do in fleshing out the implications of the truth that it contains into every nook and cranny of life. In this cultural moment that we're in, and in this brand new church, we must assert boldly, confidently, that this library of ancient texts, so incredibly creative and sophisticated and metaphorical and literal and filled with humanity and divinity, is scripture. It is divine revelation. And it is showing us the truth about the logos of the ancient Greeks fundamental, unifying truth about the cosmos and about human life that we can find nowhere else. My simple application point for us today is to devote ourselves to the study of Scripture. Devote ourselves to it. Although we may have long-standing habits of saturating our minds with entertainment and media that is here today and gone tomorrow, in this library of divinely inspired texts, we have truth that will endure. Truth that we can build our lives upon, as countless millions have before us. I try to begin every day spending 30 to 60 minutes or so prayerfully meditating on Scripture. And, and as I do so, I try to anticipate that God is going to speak to me. And what I've discovered over 20 years or so of study and meditation is that the psalmist knew exactly what he was talking about when he penned the words of the acrostic poem in Psalm 119, where he writes, Oh, how I love your law. I meditate on it all day long. Your commands are always with me and make me wiser than my enemies. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. I have kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. I have not departed from your laws, for you yourself have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. I gain understanding from your precepts, therefore I hate every wrong path. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. In the Bible, the author of the great story in which we live is inviting us in. He is shining a light to show us the way we are supposed to go. As I close, 
I'd like to share the testimony of one of those who have gone before us, a man named J.G. Heyman. He was a brilliant 19th century German philosopher who was known as the Wizard of the North. I'd like a nickname like that. Heyman was the son of a surgeon and a contemporary and a friend of Immanuel Kant's. But whereas Kant promoted ideas that led to the undermining of the Bible and of the very notion of truth itself, Heyman chose a different path. As a young man, after studying philosophy, law, and mathematics at the university, and while experiencing a severe depression, Heyman picked up a Bible and read it cover to cover. Here is how he described the experience that ensued. The further I went, the newer it became for me. The more divine was my experience of its content and effect. I forgot all my books about it. I was even ashamed that I had ever compared them to the book of God, had ever set them side by side, and had ever preferred another book to it. I found the unity of the divine will in the redemption of Jesus Christ so that all history, all miracles, all the commandments and works of God converge at this central point in order to lead the human soul out of slavery, bondage, blindness, folly, and death from sin to the greatest happiness, the highest blessedness, and a reception of such good gifts whose greatness, when they are revealed to us, must shock us more than our own unworthiness or the possibility of making ourselves worthy to them or of them. I recognized my own offenses in the history of the Jewish people. I read the story of my own life. May it be so for us. As we wade through a sea of information, may the word of God indeed be a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. And by it, may we come to know the Logos himself. Let's pray.